This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Colony. From Carlton Cuse, executive producer of Lost, comes USA Network's new original series, Colony, starring Josh Holloway and Sarah Wayne Callies. In an occupied Los Angeles, everyone must choose a side. Colony, a new original series, premiering Thursday, January 14th at 10, 9 central, only on USA Network. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking about the evolution of TV directing and the latest true crime phenomenon, Netflix's Making a Murderer. All right, I'm just going to come up and ask you, who shot her in the head? He did. Why didn't you tell us that? That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. As usual, I'm here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Solar Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hi, guys. Hi. Happy New Year. You too. <laughs> we- I, always, I always feel like the, it's a wonderful life. And a happy New Year to you <laughs> in jail. <laughs> oh, wow. Dark, Matt. Yeah. I know. Well, that's my mind frame. Let's continue. Well, we also have a special guest with us this week, Stephen Bowie. AV Club regular and creator of ClassicTVHistory.com. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Yeah, thanks for having me. This week, we're going to be talking about TV direction, and Stephen is going to help us dissect this a little bit. You know, we've mentioned on the show before that whereas film is a director's medium, TV is more of a writer's medium. And most TV shows nowadays bring on new directors for every episode, although there are exceptions, which we'll talk about as well. But my first question is simple. Why is this? Is there a reason why film has become a director's world, whereas TV has become a writer's? Or is it more complicated than an easy answer you can give me? Well, that's, that's a, f- uh, I wouldn't say recent development, but like that's something right. that started to really happen about 50 years ago. Because prior to that, when the auteur theory, which which believes that that all things considered, the director is ultimately the primary author of a, of a filmed work, really started to take hold in the United States in the 60s. Prior to that, directors were for hire. They worked for studios. They were often under contract studios. They worked for particular producers who, or studio heads who liked them. And there are particular things that they were known to be good at. Alfred Hitchcock was known to be good at thrillers. George Cukor was known to be good at melodramas or the so-called women's picture and so on. And they tended to get stereotyped in those roles. Not always. There were always exceptions, but usually they tended to work in one vein because that's, that's what they were either good at or what people were comfortable with them doing. And I think TV's treatment of the director has generally been similar to that since then. And perhaps even more so because the style of the show is usually set by whoever directs the pilot in consultation with the producers. And then the other directors who come in work within that template. And they can bring their own sensibility to it, more or less, depending on the show. But but they are working in a particular vein. Like, you know, just because Michelle McLaren, who I think is one of the better directors working today... Um, just because she directs uh, Breaking Bad episodes in a particular way brilliantly, it doesn't mean that she's necessarily going to direct an episode of The Leftovers and it's going to look like Breaking Bad. You know, she's going right. to try to play within whatever rules they've set down. But it is very complicated. And, the, and one of the things that fascinates me is whether or not it was possible for directors to show the kind of artistry that we now praise in modern television in 
earlier eras, and that's something I think Stephen knows a lot more about than I do. Well, one of the things that bothers me a little bit about this construct of the the current golden age of TV is that it sometimes you find people sort of taking the underlying assumption that TV didn't look interesting before that, you know, that before The Sopranos and The Wire, you know, it all looked like soap operas and it was all shot on videotape and it was all shot, reverse shot, and that's not true. There's always been some strain of really visually, formally adventurous TV, you know, and not always in the places you'd expect, but going back to the early days of live TV, where, you know, things were broadcast from a, you know, cramped studio, but directors like John Frankheimer would come along and they would figure out how to move those cameras. Yeah. You know, they'd twist them around and they'd get weird angles and they would just have these, you know, just in the 10 years or so that live TV was a thing. You know, they developed this whole visual grammar of it that was really sophisticated, and then it went away and it's forgotten now. People who were into that looked forward to John Frankenheimer's directing in the way that they looked forward to, like, the latest rock album by a band they liked in the 60s. I mean, that's how excited people were by what he did. Yeah, I mean, to, to people, I mean, TV critics would pay attention to that. And Frankenheimer, for a 25-year-old, had a tremendous amount of power. I mean, he could write his own ticket. He could get... He could spend money the way he wanted to do. He could do risky things technically. You know, he could go outside the studio and shoot something in the snow. And you know, I was going to mention. I don't remember the title of this, and I don't know if it exists on tape, which is another problem with a lot of these live early shows. But there was some World War II drama that he directed where they had an actual fight between two officers in a bar, and they had like it was like an action, like a fist fight, and it was done live. It was choreographed live. <laughs> And it continued outside, like it followed the guys as they were fighting outside the door of the quote-unquote bar, and then they continued in the alleyway next to the studio. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> and they went up and down this, the the fire escape of the building next door, and they got, I think the Cassavetes was one of the actors, and it never worked in rehearsal. And the first time they nailed it was when they were live on the air. I mean, there's this whole sort of cult behind the stuff that they did on live TV. Like Frank Schaffner, they'd do a, stu- a submarine drama on Studio One, and they'd fill the entire studio with, they'd put a tank in the studio and fill with water, and they're doing a live TV show from this, and nobody gets electrocuted. And a lot of these guys, I mean, a lot of those first directors, and of course most of them were men, I mean, they were young guys, they started directing in their 20s, and the thing they had done before that was World War II. You know, right. like they were they right. were bomber pilots. Or they were cam- so, like camera people in bombers. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they go in and, of course, they have no fear. They can just go into a, 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 a walk into a control room and they can call these shots and not break a sweat. You know, like George Roy Hill, what, literally, I'm thinking of George Roy Hill because he who literally. La- who later did The Sting. The Sting and Butch Cassidy, but he was one of the major live TV directors in the 50s. And, and he literally had been the head of a bomber crew in World War II, and he would compare in interviews the experience of directing live TV from the control room to directing a bombing raid in a B-52 or whatever it was. So that was sort of the the kind of type A, you know, hard-charging, we'll just make it up as we go along. I was wondering, though, like in a something like I was rewatching old episodes of the Andy Griffith show over the holidays because I find it very soothing. <laughs> um, and uh, I was really knocked out by the direction of that show. And it's a very subtle, quiet right. kind of direction and not a lot of cutting a lot of blocking for the camera, and there's some, but there's some beautiful lyrical moments. Like there's a Christmas episode where the Scrooge-like character—you probably even know which one I'm talking about—is staring. You know, he says he doesn't want to participate. He hates Christmas, bah humbug, and everybody in the community is having a party, and the camera moves from these people gathered having a great time to him staring through a window in the background, and the camera very slowly pushes in on his face as he's voyeuristically watching them from the outside, and you realize, oh my God, he wants to be in there with them. And that's the kind of moment that I think, you know, would get an entire blog post on Vulture. 
probably today because it's an amazing shot and it's 1965 or something. Well, I sort of collect all of these gonzo directors like Frankenheimer and there were a bunch of them you never heard of in the 60s and 70s like Sutton Rowley and Walter Doniger and they would do these complicated Orson Wellesian four-minute tracking shots and stuff and it's just a shame that they're forgotten but there's a whole other strain like you're talking about of really simplistic, classical, effective filmmaking and television and, and it's easy to ignore that and overlook it because it's hard to see on the surface what's going on and one of the reasons I love Mad Men, as I know you do, is that it has this kind of classical, locked down, production mm-hmm. design driven look, and it's never it's never flashy. It's not not that there's anything wrong with like Breaking Bad, where it's always a fisheye lens, or you're manning the camera on a Roomba, or that stuff is <laughs> right. is fun. But a lot of the, the really rewarding stuff is something like, and the stuff that stands the test of time is something that's a much more classical kind of look. One thing I'm curious about is why. Why bother having multiple directors for your TV show if you could just have one to stick with for the show's duration? I mean, for most of TV history, it just wasn't practical. I mean, like in the 60s and 70s, generally you'd hire a director for two weeks, a week of prep, and then a week of shooting. Mm -hmm. So for someone to try to direct every episode of an hour-long drama just would not be practical when you were doing 26 or 30 of them a year. And I think it's only recently when you have 10-episode seasons, that it becomes logistically feasible for a director to prep all of those episodes and then shoot them and then participate in post-production if they want to. Right. There is a tradition in sitcoms of a single director doing an entire season. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. that was the case on All in the Family, where John Rich directed almost all the first four years, and then Paul Bogart directed the next five or six. So I feel like it's almost apples and oranges to talk about particularly taped comedy, videotaped, three-camera right. comedy direction versus film, you know, TV direction. And that's not even gone now. Pam Fryman directed almost every episode of How I Met Your Mother. Right. For like a multi-camera show, the palette is smaller. Like the the sort of shot list is going to be more limited. And I think the sort of style and the range is going to be constricted. It, it, it is more straightforward to direct even two episodes back-to-back of, of something like a multi-camera sitcom. Right. Uh, Key and Peele is another one that comes to mind. Peter Atencio has been attributed with giving the show a lot of what makes it so funny. Yeah. And um, another recent director, not a comedy, but true detective, Carrie Fukunaga, I think became the most high-profile TV director talked about in recent years, almost to the point where people were saying he was the reason the show was good as opposed to the person who created it. <laughs> Well, didn't that kind of set that, that new, relatively new precedent of it being viable to have a single director for a whole season of a show? There were probably other examples before that recently, but that was the one where it became a branding thing. Right. Like it became part of the PR campaign for the show was that there was a directorial vision as well as an authorial mm-hmm. one. Right. And the second season of True Detective, I believe they split the duties like four and four between two yeah. different directors. And that one had a lot of problems, which we won't go into here because, uh, um, <laughs> but uh, of course, Soderbergh directed two seasons in The Nick. And I understand, isn't Sam Esmail, what's his name? Oh, Sam Esmail. Isn't he going to do all of the next season of Mr. Robot? Am I right about that? Yes. I think yes. So. That's okay. Yeah. But I wonder if this idea that in order for a show to have a visual personality, it has to be directed by or supervised by one filmmaker is really a good way to think about TV. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like Mad Men, Breaking Bad, a lot of great shows have felt visually not uniform, but consistent. Like they have a vibe and they have a bunch of different directors. 
And I love it. I love the fact that there are shows where there's a lot, most of or in the entirety of a season is being directed by one person. I wonder if this isn't kind of a step backward or regression. Like, huh. just when television was feeling its oats and feeling like losing that inferiority complex in relation to movies, suddenly they've imported a piece of it back. Oh, that's interesting. It's a very hard question to answer of who is the auteur behind an episode of Mad Men. You know, like what decisions are made by the director that week and what decisions are made by Matt Weiner and what decisions are made by somebody else. And I feel like that's the kind of boots on the ground research that I really wish more journalists were doing and had the access to do and that I try to do, you know, for stuff that's 50 years old. But mm-hmm. I hope that people are looking at it from this way and that, you know, when, when papers get archived and things, that people really try to analyze that because I really don't know. I mean, I think I Mad mean, Men is the wrong example there just because Matt Weiner is very famously, like, extremely involved in all right. the decision making and, yeah. uh, you know, the same way that, like, Aaron Sorkin would take a pass at every script and, and Amy Sherman Palladino, like, rewrote or like massaged every episode of Gilmore Girls like I think for some showrunners like that level of control is true and like that is part of the vision of the show and the structure of the show and then depending on the series depending on how many other shows that person may be in charge of those decisions become more deputized right well and it's very different from show to show as you're saying and and like David Simon was always very generous about giving credit for the the look of the show and those kinds of onset decisions to the directors and backing off from taking any credit from that and I did he ever direct the wire i don't i don't believe so no i mean you look at you look at what david chase directs and you really think like particularly the feature he made not fade away and you Mm -hmm. think wow you really have to give him a lot of credit for how the sopranos looked whether he's taking it or not but again Mm -hmm. it's different from every show it's different for every episode i feel like there's a, a pretty specific hierarchy of directors in terms of their prestige and what kind of shows they can get booked for it's like if you're doing sort of a cheap you know, sci-fi channel show in Vancouver, you're not going to get booked to book to do The Leftovers. I mean, it's not going to happen. I mean, you have to work your way up that ladder, and it's hard to do that. And if you look at shows from the 60s and 70s, it was exactly the same way. It was like mm. there was a handful of prestige directors who would get booked on the top dramas like East Side, West Side, or The Defenders, or The Fugitive. And then there were guys who were a little bit more journeymen, you know, who would get booked on the less prestige, like, you know, the, the low-budget westerns and stuff. Well, there is, in fact, typecasting, and there's not just typecasting according to what sort of story they think directors are good for, but there's also a gender issue as well. Yep. And I've talked to a number of female directors who have talked about their frustration with how they are never asked to direct things like Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, stuff that's considered huh. to be violent, violent and therefore male. And in one case, uh, one of these directors is a, it had on her resume uh, two extraordinarily violent and very, very <laughs> effective horror films. And she was getting called for things that were basically domestic dramas and sitcoms. It's like, guys, I know how to spill blood. I know how to spill blood. Like, I'm as good at spilling blood as any of the dudes that you're hiring. But she was never getting those calls. You know, you had a handful of women directors in live TV. And then, of course, as soon as being a TV director becomes a sought-after gig, they got pushed out. And you (laughs) didn't have any more women directors in TV until the 80s, basically, or the very late 70s. There's like one exception. But but you didn't start having them in any number until the 80s. And again, then that glass ceiling gets pushed up. It's like you're getting booked for lifetime TV movies or you're getting Mm. booked for... um, you know, shows with women protagonists or primarily women casts. And then Mm. you have all these barriers you have to break through. And then, but I do think there are a handful of directors who are getting on the the big dramatic and the big action shows. And that to me was the one that made me think, all right, now we're starting to get to a point where there's some 
equality because that to me seemed like the blast barrier where you could get booked on these really stereotypically masculine shows right. as a woman director and be taken as an equal there. That to me seemed like the last frontier in a way. Hmm. You still need more of it, but I, that was the thing I thought was really encouraging to see people like Mamie Leader and Gwyneth Horter Payton and Michelle McLaren on those shows. Yes. Coming up, we'll talk about making a murderer, but first, a message from our sponsors. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Colony. From Carlton Cuse, executive producer of Lost, comes USA Network's new original series, Colony, starring Josh Holloway of Lost and Sarah Wayne Callies of The Walking Dead. Imagine an occupied world where everyone must choose a side. If your city was no longer your own, who would you trust with your life? Where would you run? And what would you risk to save the ones you love? Colony, a new original series premiering Thursday, January 14th at 10, 9 central, only on USA Network. Making a Murderer is Netflix's 10-episode documentary series that was released just before the holidays. It was created by Laura Riccardi and Moira Demos. It follows the trial of Stephen Avery, a Wisconsin man who was accused of rape and sentenced to jail in 1985, served 18 years, only to be exonerated by DNA, and then only to be convicted of a different murder of a woman named Teresa Hallback. We also, later in the series, get the story of Brendan Dassey, his nephew, who it seems was coerced into giving a confession. So we have these two trials going on that we watch for the duration of these 10 hours. I've read about it being compared a bit to the experience of watching the O.J. Simpson trial in the sense that it's most fascinating in that hours of it are just watching trial. This is 700 hours of footage that they called down to 10 hour hour-long episodes. The fact that they lived with this thing for more than 10 years is pretty amazing. I mean, we are looking at somebody's life's work here. Right. It's a lot. And and uh, the amount of access that they had, I would imagine that you can only get that kind of access if the people involved are not famous. You know, like if you're the only person who cares about this case, right. that's the only circumstances under which you're allowed that level of access, not just to the the accused and their families, but to law enforcement and, and things like that. Right, and I'll also say that not every state allows filming inside courtrooms. Wisconsin does, which is why there's actual footage from the trial, which is not true of every trial. We also have videotapes of the confessions. Not every state requires videotaped confessions. And part of what's interesting about this case is that confession of, from Brendan, the nephew, was one of the earliest required videotapes. Like, because police are not always required to videotape all confessions, and it depends on the jurisdiction. It depends on, a brun- like, a variety of factors. And this was one of the first interrogations that was required to be videotaped. And that's, to me, one of the most affecting moments in the series. So, I've, yeah, I mean, I think part of the show is not just access, but it's also materials. That's what makes the show, is seeing all of this stuff. And if we were just having, like courtroom sketch art and and people recounting what had happened, I don't think it would be anywhere near as effective. I think the closest equivalent for me is the Paradise Lost films, which <laughs> which unfolded over a series mm-hmm. of decades. And you really got a sense of time passing and, and people getting older and gaining and then losing hope. And that's something that a, docu- a single documentary about a, a violent incident usually can't give you, that kind of longitudinal sense. Yeah. I mean, I thought the show was really effective and and has been at the forefront of my mind since I watched it a couple weeks ago. So I, I reviewed it, and so I had to watch all of it before any of my friends could watch it and talk about it with me. And it's been extremely frustrating for those couple of weeks to be like, guys, I need you to watch this murder show so we can talk about this. I have all these questions because you're a lawyer and I want to know about this stuff. So like, Planet Marge, things are looking up. Um, 
But one beef that I've heard a lot is that that people felt it was it sort of dragged and that there was a lot of dead time uh, or that that sort of 10 hours felt like a slog. There's a lot of repetition of certain themes. That was one of the things I did find curious about it. It felt to me like a show that was intended to be watched a week at a time with some time to digest it. And there were a lot of portions that felt almost like, you know, previously on, but yeah. but they were nestled within the narrative itself where we're kind of going back over what we saw in the previous episode. And in a sense, that's helpful because there's a lot of detail to absorb. But yeah, I don't know if it needed to be 10 hours. But then again, considering the magnitude of what they're trying to do here, that's a minor quibble. Yeah. And in a sense, I, I appreciated a lot of the elements that really give you a sense of the community and who these people are. But there were certain like voiceover elements that are repeated to this point where I'm like, you were using the same quotes almost over and over again. And I didn't necessarily need all of that. Yeah. You know, the feeling of like, it's kind of a slug. It's like, yeah, it is. Right? <laughs> like, 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 like it should be. Much, there, much as it would be if right. you were in the middle of it in life. <laughs> right. It's, like, it's, it's, it's a slog yeah. about a slog. Like, and so... You know, as frustrating as it was to be like, this appeal was denied, this part, like, judge said no, this was what they put together, and it was dismissed. And you're just like, what? And, like, that sensation mounting over 10 hours, like, really got me, you know? And Mm -hmm. and that sense of frustration and despair and, and just how desperate you feel by the end of it for something to be different. I think, you know, certainly in a feature film length, I don't think we would reach that same level of, I don't know, that feeling of, like, drowning in this kind of uh, <laughs> yeah. right like nightmarish despair of like what is happening uh, I think it's harder to get that sense of overwhelming confusion in shorter works uh, 10 hours of it is a lot I didn't I didn't find it too much but it definitely you know for a show that is on Netflix it was not a good marathon Oh, brother. <laughs> like, yeah. I, yeah. There's something almost perverse about Ugh. releasing this over the holidays. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God, everyone's, like, eyes glazed over. But it certainly does cut to the heart of how much inertia there is in the criminal justice system, and it shows us that from the inside and not not through the lens of celebrity, which is what you usually get with a lot of these long-form documentaries about criminal trials where like they're you're either dealing with famous people or you're dealing with people who became famous because the case was so notorious and you feel like they're on the level of you know like a movie star or but i think in wisconsin this case is very famous it is yes and but not to the rest of the country is sure what i'm saying i think part of the fabric of the show is that certainly within that area of wisconsin but in wisconsin in general this case is infamous and steve Neary was sort of a you know he was only the fourth person exonerated from the wisconsin innocence project for dna evidence on the one hand like four people is a shitload of people to like be spending their lives incarcerated for crimes they didn't commit on the other hand that's not that's not a tidal wave here. That's four people. That's not so many. There was a law named for him. He won like one of the largest suits against the county in American history. So there is a lot of the show that's about notoriety. And part of jury selection certainly, I think, had like like it was hard not to feel that that, that was part of that. And the sort of Avery clan's image in their community as as infamous is part of it. I think, yes, obviously it's not a national celebrity story and, and it doesn't feel like it's been like metastasized through the Nancy Grace <laughs> shoot. <laughs> right. But part of the story is that it's a story. There is a meta narrative throughout all of this because there, we have mm-hmm. all the local news people and, and the sort of commentary from other people in their community about, well, you we all know blank and, and this is what 
like this is town knowledge and everyone agrees. And and so there is that weird little like micro fame that happens mm-hmm. in any kind of community that I think is a huge part of the story. You know, I have to say I do have a major misgiving about this series and it's not unique to this series. And and I want to be careful what I say here because I don't want to seem like I'm devaluing the filmmaking, the storytelling, which I think is great. I mean, I think this is a ma- this is a major work for whatever issues I have with it. But I have one kind of irreconcilable problem with this kind of true crime story, which is it is taking reality and turning it into an, oh, shit, I can't believe that just happened narrative. And I know that there's a perception that there's a difference between documentary and nonfiction. At least some people feel that there is, where a documentary is simply exploring life and explaining how and why things happen, whereas a nonfiction is something that could be using the techniques of fiction to draw your interest and keep you excited you're throughout in cold and keep bloods. you on the edge. Yeah. However, in cold blood, at no point is hiding things from you. You know what I'm saying? It's not creating twists. And I felt like there there were um, points in this where I started to resent the show a little bit for not giving me enough insight into the major characters so that I could really judge for myself if I thought um, they were capable of committing these sorts of crimes. Did like you feel I, it was one-sided? Not really. I felt like it was more like, I mean, my frustration stemmed from the fact that I didn't feel close enough to these characters emotionally Mm -hmm. or intellectually to make any sort of judgment about them as people except for what the plot was doing to me from one moment to the next, where it's like, oh, my God, he didn't do it. Yay, he's innocent. Wait a second. Maybe he's really a murderer, you know, and it's like and it seemed to it seemed to come out knowing nothing about the case. I didn't bring any exterior knowledge about the case into this with me. That was my reaction to it. And, and I had a similar reaction, if you recall, to the Jinx and mm-hmm. uh, to that director's previous uh, documentary, Capturing the Freedmans, which Ooh. used the same kind of methods. And there's a whole subgenre of documentary, often about true crime or some kind of uh, scandal or, or something really dark and twisted that does this, where it takes this thing that is part of the record. And if you actually go on, you know, a criminal justice website or Wikipedia or anywhere, you can find out almost every single detail that's going to be revealed to you when you watch these documentaries in chronological order. I feel like they're playing a little three-card Monty with the plot so that you get that, oh, my God, kind of moment that you would get if you were watching fiction. And this is a minority opinion. I totally accept that this is a minority opinion, but there's a part of me that feels like this is not what I want from a documentary like this. And I, and I say that partly because I'm rereading um, Jeffrey Tubin's book on the O.J. case, uh, The Run of His Life, in, in the preparation to watch this miniseries. And that's a case where I know, because I was watching it on TV like everybody else, I know everything about this case. I know all the all the major players, all the different major moves that were committed in the course of the trial. But it's still an incredibly suspenseful book because it's giving me insight into the characters and into the legal maneuverings and all of that. And it's like it's it's a case of suspense rather than surprise. And I feel like there's a little too much surprise in this show and suspense would have been perfectly fine by me. And again, this is not something a lot of people are going to complain about. I may just be a weirdo, but that was how I felt. No, I, I don't know that I disagree. I think I just respond to that problem differently mm-hmm. because – you know, it's interesting to hear you call the players in the show characters because they're subjects, right? And they're not characters. They're people. And they're real people. And so it's hard for a show, certainly like this, where your sort of central figure is incarcerated and you're not allowed to have access to film him, that what happens is I think the the engine of the show, rather than being driven by a particular one particular subject's point of view, is that what's driving the show is the plot 
right? And and the case moving forward, not just what is the state of Stephen Avery and like who is Stephen Avery, because the show does a marginal job of being like, so who is Stephen Avery really? Like that's not the premise of the show, right? The premise is how does a series of systems come together to create a case such as this? Mm-hmm. And what are the sort of social factors? What are the scientific factors because DNA evidence and then sort of testing and not testing stuff like as criminal justice processes, like scientific processes advance, that changes the way that the case operates. And I think one thing that's happening now is sort of a collective attitude about coerced confessions sort of changing. I think, mm-hmm. you know, for a long time, I think people sort of were like, that can't happen. And now people are like, oh, yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. And they're like that sort of being part of like a tide change. I think we're seeing a lot of attitudes about criminal justice reform, incarceration reform, shifting within society. And so like the audience for this case, whether it's a jury, people in the courtroom or us as viewers of this documentary, that has shifted too. And so the the show is not about a person. It's about like a sort of ecosystem. Right. Oh, I, mean, I would agree were... with that, but I felt like I was it I could not fairly and accurately judge on my own terms that ecosystem that you're talking about without having these people be defined a little better. And the distinction between characters and subjects is an interesting one, but I have read interviews with the filmmakers where they talk about this, about how they refer to these these real people as characters because they are telling a story and they have to think of them that way. Yeah. And again, this is a, this is not a deal breaker for me. It's 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 an amazing work. It's really fascinating. And I did appreciate things like what you're talking about. Um, you know, B- Brendan's confession is, uh, oh, my God, just so angry. <laughs> I felt so angry when I was watching it because you could see the the detective was taking advantage of this person who didn't have the mental faculties to realize what was happening to him. You know, I watched this most of this over the weekend, which I don't usually do, jumping on something new and streaming all of it and marathoning all of it. And I did that because everybody on Twitter seemed to be talking about this and seemed to be saying what you're saying, that just feeling rage at the end of each episode and the end of each development. And so I watched this and I didn't really have that reaction at all. And I don't know if it's because I'm more cynical or because the filmmakers are credulous, but I feel like this matches my assumptions of how the justice system worked. (laughs) I have yet to be surprised at any of the behavior you know, upset, obviously, but not at all surprised in the way that I think people who have been really outraged and express outrage on social media about this have. And so I just wonder, uh, you know, is it me or is that something in the filmmaking that's that way? Is it, I guess what I'm missing here is not, you're talking about how the characters are somewhat opaque, about how Avery is opaque and it's really hard to tell how the filmmakers feel about him, not just about whether he's innocent or guilty, but whether they like him, you know, compared yeah. to Durst where in, in The Jinx, where it's very, very clear. Well, it's sad, but just to be clear, that's, that's not my specific objection. It, it's that, but it's also the, the kind of like, let's keep this card and that card in our right. pocket and play them later for effect. I think what was most fascinating to me was just watching the trial. The defense lawyers are so good at their jobs and you're like watching them present this evidence and you're watching it all happen and then you see the judge you know deny another motion or whatever the case may be and that's what left me with the feeling in the pit of my stomach that something terrible was happening and that I was a witness to it it felt like there was enough reasonable doubt I was convinced that something maybe (laughs) off happened I I, I wouldn't say that I know I don't presume to know what did happen Well what was clear to me was And I often have this feeling watching Documentaries on crimes of this type Where a whole community, it's a small community And the entire community seems to have a personal stake In the outcome I did feel the rage that I felt about individual events in this story came out of the feeling that The system, which is supposed to be neutral Is being used to settle personal scores 
and that there's a, there was a lot of lying and a lot of incompetence and a lot of attempts to cover up incompetence and lying. And it gets to the point when then this happens over the course of many years, particularly with a single case, where when the defense can come up with an alternate theory, even if it seems a little bit kind of ludicrous, you almost start to believe it because it's almost like a, I don't know how to put this, an act of protest against governmental bullshit and opacity. You know, like if you're not going to tell us what's actually happening, if you're not going to do your jobs well and do your jobs honestly, then can you blame us for looking for other explanations for what happened? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. One thing, Margaret, you were talking about was how this could change our perception of the legal system. And, you know, over the years, there have been studies on like the Perry Mason effect and how like people would watch Perry Mason and think that this is how trials actually worked. And that the <laughs> sure, and certainly the CSI you know, effect is like CSI effect very well. present today. And p this does actually affect how people who end up on juries think the legal system works. And there was a commenter on a Gawker story who worked at an innocence project who who wrote, it might have seemed like everyone was listening to Serial, but their audience is actually minuscule compared to who watches CSI and NCIS. And those shows keep telling people who will serve on juries that things like bite marks and hair analysis can be fed into a computer and bam, you've got your you've got your perp. Right. And the reality is that a lot of the, these forensics are unvalidated and it routinely sends innocent people to it's prison. It's more ambiguous. Yeah. Well, the, the text that this made me think of consistently and want to go back and revisit was The Staircase, yeah. Yeah. which was the, that, again, multi-part, similar length documentary about the Michael Peterson case, which is another regional thing that was huge in the region because I'm from North Carolina, which is where that happened. And everybody there had knew the case and had an opinion on it. I don't know that it got that much national coverage. And But that documentary to me was much more interesting than this because it was, it kept going into all these kind of existential and philosophical philosophical areas and mining this fairly straightforward legal case for those. And one of those was that it, it ultimately seemed to me the staircase to be an attack on the nature, on the idea of expertise, you know, hmm. that you can put someone, an expert, you know, a doctor or a scientist or a lab technician on a stand and have them answer the, the question for you with a yes or a no, that, that that was sort of a goal of the legal system that really was not realistic, that we all treat it as realistic, you know, that someone is, it's a binary, somebody's guilty or not guilty. But so often you just can't get to that. You know, the mm -hmm. only person who will ever know that is the person who's guilty or not guilty. And, and that documentary really seemed in, in a very cerebral way to kind of get into the implications of that. And I guess I feel like that's what's missing in this is some layer beyond this, the minutia right. of this particular case. And one thing that I'm not sure how I feel about is we've seen a, a couple petitions come out asking President Obama to pardon Stephen Avery. <laughs> and the, these have been circulating, you know, people are signing them. But is this really the right way? Would not a new trial be better should he immediately be pardoned just because we now have this communal sense that maybe something wrong happened, but we are not sure, so... <laughs> yeah. I am, like, very sympathetic to the desire to, like, oh, what do we do with this sense of frustration? And, like, and like you, like, this was not a huge revelation to me that, like, oh, are people often railroaded within the criminal justice right. system? It was like, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like, oh, here's a show about one, one of the times that happened. It's well, like, it's like, okay. Who didn't know that if you're poor in the United States and you get accused of murder, you're screwed? I mean, is that a revelation <laughs> to anybody? It's like... But, but it's good to spotlight these stories <laughs> right. on yeah. the that other said, hand. Right. I don't think that, you know, that negates, like, the value of a story, right? Like, 
we all know a lot about how the world operates, but we still are drawn to instances of specificity and, right. and there's still virtue in that story. I do think that there is some value in, in the idea of this as a, an expose, albeit not an in-your-face kind of obvious sort of expose. There are a lot of people who are going to watch this thing who don't believe that this kind of stuff really happens. There are an incredible number of people in this country who believe the justice system works. It, it's there to protect us against the bad guys. The cops and are always right. The cops are always the right. Cops and even tell if, you to put and up even, your hands, put up your hands. And even if they're the not, you've got to give them the benefit of the doubt because yeah. they're the good guys and they're fighting the bad guys on our behalf and so forth and so on. And yeah. if you didn't have anything to hide, you, you know, why wouldn't you let the cops come onto your property? Like, what uh, do you, right? And I think that confession scene is is. I was just going to mention it again. It's extraordinary. And it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, believable and awful. What else happens to her in her head? Extremely, extremely important you tell us this. For us to believe you. Come on, Brendan. What else? We know. We just need you to tell us. That's all I can remember. All right, I'm just going to come out and ask you, who shot her in the head? He did. Why didn't you tell us that? So I can't think of it. There are a lot of people who just don't think that it's possible to coerce a confession. And they're like, if you didn't do it, but, why would you say you did? Like, that doesn't make sense. Anytime anyone recants a confession, people roll their eyes. And if this, like, helps turn the tides on that, I agree. Like, I'm not surprised by it, but is that bad? One of the other topics that it broaches is this idea, which a lot of people also don't seem to believe, that you could conceivably not be a violent criminal when you go into prison, but you could be one when you come out as a result of having spent time in prison. And that's something that a current fictional show, Rectify, explores very well. Mm-hmm. And that's another show that sort of keeps keeps its distance on the question of whether or not the main character is really guilty of the crime that he was sent away for in the first place. But uh, that and the idea that, you know, a confession can be very easily coerced and all the circumstances under which it can be coerced, like all of these things are really useful. And I'm glad that the show is demonstrating them in an irrefutable way. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, does it seem like Brendan has the reasoning capabilities of an adult? And, you know, no, right? And and it's when you think about should this person be charged as an adult, right? You know, when you see his handwriting, does that look like the handwriting of a high school sophomore to you? That, like, you know, his mom on the final episode was like, oh, I saw him in jail. We played 61 games of Uno. And I I was like... (laughs) Yeah, that person is in his mid twenties now, and right. So there was like all of these, I think, important ideas that come up out of the show. And so while I think the response to like Reddit detective everything is often misguided, say, yeah. uh, and I like sympathize with the the desire to act. I'm not sure that like internet solves cases really like <laughs> something that's in the on the horizon. But I do think like being more, I don't know conscientious about who you vote for and what what kinds of prosecutors are you vote for and thinking about instances of prosecutorial misconduct and being more cognizant of that being you know more pervasive than maybe you imagined i think thinking about issues of juvenile over incarceration about trying to limit the number of children who are prosecuted as adults i think trying to be more conscientious about people with intellectual and cognitive disabilities being prosecuted as if they did not have those intellectual and cognitive disabilities. I think being like more aware, more attuned, more sensitive to those things is good and correct and appropriate. And I think as we're watching a variety of attitudes shift around particularly issues of incarceration, but I think like perhaps like social justice issues in general, 
I do think it's helpful to have rallying points. I do think it's helpful, even if if some of the people watching them are not surprised. I think it's easy to be like, hey, remember this time, this famous incident, this show that maybe you saw that we did not necessarily have like an, a concrete example of or an identifiable vocabulary for? I think that is a net good. And I think it can be hard to watch. I always feel weird when we turn true crime things into like, like sensations because someone died, like a real yeah. person. You know, there's like whatever the circumstances of her murder were, she was murdered and it's really awful and that's a like shocking trauma and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And, and there's a psychic collateral damage inflicted on the community. Yeah, and, and so, you know, it's it's strange to sort of try to decontextualize that and sort of like scoop it all up and make it this other thing rather than like part of the complicated fiber of life that it is. And it's like, no, we're going to sort of make it into this like show and it's 10 hours even though and if that felt long, even though obviously there's stuff that they couldn't even get to, they, that that tension feels like strange. And, you know, it's like how you know you're still a person if you're like capable of being bothered by suffering. Well, we've talked about a lot of conundrums on this segment of the show. But one of them is what you're talking about, which is this, you know, a lot of my qualms that I discussed earlier come back to this idea of I feel like the show is using the techniques of fiction to hype things up to a certain degree to get more people to watch, to keep people more in suspense and kind of a classic fiction film sort of way and yet you know even though i worry that that's kind of sensationalizing it even though this is a very subtle show you're like i i almost hesitate to use the word sensationalized but even if it's doing that we are talking about it we are talking about it we are talking about it and and it is it worth the trade-off is ultimately the question and i think in this case yeah probably probably yeah. it is you know, we wouldn't be discussing it if they did it in a straightforward, traditional way that was more meditative and simply about the meaning of what happened. Um, you know, it would be downloaded by 75,000 people and, and we wouldn't be discussing it on this show. I don't know. That's kind of a far alley, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646 504 7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman and Sarah Abdurrahman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers and Stephen Bowie, our special guest this week. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, tell your friends. <laughs> if you don't, fuck you. Gargle my balls. <laughs> Come back next time. Can that be our new stand-off? <laughs> if you don't like the show, you just listen to an hour and a half of hating yourself. Go listen to a pledge drive somewhere. What's the matter with you? I'm Gazelle Avami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons. You can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller Sites. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. I'm on Stephen Bowie, and you actually can find me on Twitter at Smiling Cobra. And don't forget to send us your TV New Year's resolutions. We're still mm. collecting a bunch of exciting changes you're trying to make to your TV life. So send those into TVQuestions at Vulture.com. Thanks for listening. Experience the most delicious, entertaining, and bizarre parts of life in the big city with New York Magazine's collection of podcasts. Available exclusively from Panoply. Tune into the Grub Street podcast for restaurant trends that'll soon be sweeping the country. Catch exclusive interviews with the stars of your favorite TV shows with the Vulture TV podcast. And check out Sex Lives for intimate discussions of sex in the real city. It's like taking a trip to New York from the comfort of your earbuds.